You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And a very good morning to you. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Each weekday morning, I'll bring you the latest business and finance stories ready for the start of trading in Asia's financial markets. In today's headlines, the major Asia-Pacific stock markets were all lower Monday as investors remain nervous about contagion from the recent bank failures and the rescue of Credit Suisse spreading. Banking shares in Asia were hit by concerns that the deal imposed larger losses on some bondholders than shareholders in a reversal of the normal order of priority of creditors and the debt of some Asian lenders designed to be among the first to face write-downs if an institution gets into trouble dropped by record amounts. President Xi Jinping started a three-day state visit to Russia on Monday. This is President Xi's first visit to Russia since its troops invaded Ukraine. On his arrival, Mr Putin said he will discuss Xi Jinping's 12-point plan to settle the acute crisis in Ukraine, as he described it. He said, we're always open for a negotiation process, as the leaders called each other dear friends. Chinese property developer Evergrande has released a new timeline for its debt restructuring process. At a court hearing in Hong Kong on Monday, Evergrande said it expected to sign an agreement with creditors by the end of the month and the restructuring would probably be effective from October. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft and Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum. Apologies, we can't get hold because of some technical issues. Our economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. But if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Shares on Wall Street stabilised Monday, with all three major indices advancing. The S&P 500 rose 0.9% to end the session at 3,952. The Dow jumped 353 points, or 1.2%, to close at 32,245. The Nasdaq Composite gained 0.4% and closed at 11,676. Regional banks rose on Monday, rebounding from big losses in the past week. The KBW Regional Banking Index rose 1.5% after slumping 5.4% Friday and losing 10% last week. But the major exception was shares of San Francisco-based First Republic Bank, which fell another 47% following a rating downgrade at the weekend from S&P Global, the second by the credit ratings agency in a week. There were also reports that it had instructed JP Morgan to help evaluate its strategic options. Its shares are down 90% so far in March. Hong Kong stocks led losses in the Asia-Pacific region. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 518 points, or 2.7%, to a more than three-month low of 19,000. It was dragged down by financials and healthcare stocks. Banking stocks were hit as investors realised that the takeover of Credit Suisse would impose large losses on holders of certain types of the bank's bonds. Shares of HSBC tumbled over 6%. That's the biggest drop in nearly six months, while Standard Chartered was down 7%. US Treasuries fell and yields rose, reversing price gains from earlier in the session. The yield on the benchmark 10-year US Treasury was up four basis points at 3.48%. The two-year yield was up 12 basis points at 3.97%. And... Uh, The two-year yield traded as low as 3.63% at one stage before exploding all the way back up to over 4%. That's a 40 basis point swing intraday. 
and Treasury bonds have seen eight trading days of extreme moves now. Elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar hit a one-month low, while gold prices topped $2,000 an ounce for the first time in 11 months before pairing gains. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And let's go and join our guests. We have with us Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Mark Michelson, who's chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Peter. So once again, here we are talking about a, a major bank bailout. Um, we've had Silicon Valley Bank go under. We've had the bailout of Credit Suisse. Um, are we sort of going back to the old days in the global financial crisis where we're rescuing banks that really should just be allowed to fail? No. <laughs> Simple. Um, Credit Suisse in this instance is one of the 30 globally systemic important banks. And so uh, clearly, and that was a list compiled uh, centrally by global um, regulators and authorities to ensure that uh, where the where any of the 30 banks that were named in that list had a problem, they would be supported. And uh, quite clearly, that's what's happened for Credit Suisse. The issue is that uh, Credit Suisse is like everyone, like, like a number of other banks, has been caught up in a, in a whirlstorm of problems and issues and and it was not going to be able to get itself out of that in the end, and it needed to be supported, bailed out, as as you've said, by the authorities, by the Swiss Central Bank, and and also by having itself taken over. Um, I think that uh, what we're seeing with the U.S. banks, on the other hand, is slightly different, and uh, so we shouldn't make the assumption that although it seems the same, that they are two different circumstances going on here. Mark, who's paying for all of this? We, we can't create money out of thin air, can we? we, we we've hopefully learned that from the last 15 years. A lot of money is being pumped in somewhere. Who, who's, who's bearing the cost of this? Well, I, eventually, I guess uh, most of us are, are going to one way or another. And of course, it's as it's been warned, it's affected, it's affected the financial instruments elsewhere. Uh, around the world, including in Asia, and of course the uncertainty itself, the overhang, is really is really important. It's the sentiment and and you know a lot less confidence when we think, you know, for example, the top line of our forecast for this for this year was high levels of global uncertainty in 2023. Mm -hmm. Well, we well that's still right, I guess, but nobody thought it would start with the Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. So there 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 you go. Well, uh, who's paying for it is really um, twofold. One, the shareholders of the banks themselves, and then secondly, the taxpayer. Because clearly, if you're looking at the US, where it is a federal bailout, it is the taxpayer who is the, who is the financial support there. Hmm. In terms of the individual banks themselves, well, the shareholders and owners of various of their in, uh, instruments that have been issued will be losing money. And uh, when we see that, uh, for example, in this Credit Suisse case, the shareholders are getting 76 cents as against a share price that was in the uh, double digit um, level many 
well, not so many months ago, really. Um, that's uh, that's a big big loss that they're going to pick up. But you've also got the the bondholders who have really been decimated, um, and that's the one that the uh, that that's probably where there's going to be a bit of a problem. What's called the additional tier one bondholders. Have, would have expected to have been above the line of the shareholders in mm. terms of being mm. bailed out. The other thing is, from a political standpoint, of course, this, as as uh, Stuart says, the taxpayers paying for it. There are it's already a little controversial in the U.S. about raising debt debt ceiling and how you're going to cut spending. And here's another indicator. That uh, looks like it's uh, looks like it's going to raise the costs of of government again in the U.S. And of course, the the parties are blaming each other, and this could have a knock-on effect clearly on, on on the global economy, not just the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, to come come back to what you're saying there. Uh, lawyers in the U.S. are having a field day on this because they see fantastic opportunity for them. Um, and 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 there be, will be lawyers in um, Europe who will also follow up. I don't think there will be that many lawyers in Hong Kong or Asia that will be taking a lot of interest in this. They'll be allowing their compatriots in the other markets to 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 use it as a class action. This um, the the collapse of a, a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, which lent heavily to small startups, does that now make it harder? for smaller businesses to raise funds? And does that include here in Asia? Because they had um, a tie-up, didn't they, with Shanghai Pudong Bank in China, and they helped raise money for small Chinese startups as well. Are they going to find it harder now to raise funds, those types of companies? Um, to an extent, yes, because the one of the possible lenders has just been taken out. But it, I think it's what is very interesting is what's happening in the UK, where HSBC have bought for one pound the UK SVB and they appear to be very infused at the idea of a whole new base of clients that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to get hold of. Mm. And, and that's something that I think we should be looking at quite carefully. This looks like a fantastic deal for HSBC on the surface. We'll just have to see how it works in, in practice. But but the opportunity for one of the major banks, biggest bank in Europe, let's face it, um, to get into an area of lending to technology companies and, um, and, and startups where they wouldn't previously have bothered um, could be a, you know, a whole new phase of banking for them. Marco, any of you... They can work that to come back bring that same sort of experience back to Asia. Mark, are any of your smaller companies worried about raising funds? They were before, to some extent or another, because of the ups and downs of of, of the economy in the in the past the past three years or so. We haven't we obviously it's been so recent, haven't had a real chance to talk about it. But I expect I expect some of them will be for some of the reasons because it they're they aren't sure what the knock on effects or how contagious this this con particular contagion is i think that's that's the issue and are they worried about where to deposit their cash now in in the light of the collapse of, the, of these banks is that becoming an issue for them i think it will as i as i said we haven't had the chance to discuss it yet but i i expect it might although at the, i think in the short term they probably feel reasonably confident in their 
own financial institutions, because some of them, as Seward has suggested, have strengthened and or look like they've strengthened, at least on the surface, because they've been able to take advantage of of the distress of other uh, other uh, institutions and, and some of their services and and to take them up and get into areas maybe they weren't before that they think will be profitable going forward. But um, we don't know yet, do we? It's very early days. I I think it's a good point that you're raising, Peter, because people will now start to think much more carefully about where they will put their deposits. Previously, they thought if it's a bank, it's fine. It's it's paying higher rates of interest than uh, another bank. That's fine. But no longer will that be the case. Mm. I think people will be much more careful going forward. And, and people should anyway, shouldn't they really have been thinking about where they're holding their, uh, who's holding their money and the concentration yes. of, of, of how they do that? Of course they should be, but we know what people are really like. And it's, <laughs> been fif- it's 15 years since the last uh, big financial cli- crisis, so people have forgotten what that was like. But it's difficult for the poor old retail investor, isn't it? The small guy. I mean, he doesn't have the ability to examine banks' bank balance sheets. And, and, you know, even sophisticated investors find, you know, banks' balance sheets are just a black hole if you look through all the filings. Um, A small investor is going to find it almost impossible to make an objective decision about should I put my deposits at this bank or or that bank, really. It's going to be hard for them, isn't it? Um, No. (laughs) Um, No. I, I, I think this is where people who are most greedy, they're the ones that look for the best possible returns, and they might, they might do so to get another two or three basis points, but they're the ones that are taking the highest risk, mm. and they don't realize they're taking the risk at the time. They're only looking to see what the return is, and they don't, they're not analyzing the, the risk side. So they're the ones that are going to be losing out. The people who are um, just comfortable with whatever the major banks, such as um, HSBC Standard Chartered or Bank of China or whoever, um, are offering, uh, they they won't have any any of the same risks. Mm. I mean, we saw the Asian banks hit quite hard, didn't we, yesterday? Particularly HSBC Standard Chartered. You mentioned, you know, the reasons these eighty-one bondholders getting sort of wiped out. Are you worried? I mean, just ripping up the normal banking and insolvency rules, which which the Swiss government has in effect um, done, doesn't that just add to all the uncertainty? Because if you're an investor in these bonds, um, you've got to really rethink now, haven't you, the rationale for holding them? Because if they become um, in the queue of priorities less than shareholders, you might as well just go and invest in the shares, shouldn't you? Um, yeah, that's 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 going to be the argument that will come through now. I think the whole logic of the, particularly the 81 type bonds, um, has completely been thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And um, there are plenty of other uh, banks that have issued them. Uh, they're called cocoa bonds in some instances. Mm-hmm. And um, they've, they've all been thrown out the window now. And I think the, 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 that market will evaporate very quickly. Is the crisis over now? I mean, we, the markets seem to have stabilised overnight, don't they? Investors seem to be a little bit calmer, or do you think there's just something else now waiting um, that's going to ignite this all over again? I don't think I don't think the crisis is over, not at all. I think we're going. To, I think we've got quite a few weeks before this will change and and settle down. But I think we have to hope that the worst of the crisis is over. 
and that uh, we and and what what will also happen and we shouldn't underestimate it the banks that have been um left out of this and and that's mainly asian banks are probably going to get strengthened as a result again it also based i teach a teach a course on uh on financial and and trade policy and the experience with in one of the one of the sessions is on financial crises and as Stuart was suggesting our experience and you never know if it happens now is that it looks like it settled down and then there are new revelations mm-hmm. from you know banks we hadn't even thought of or, or and maybe they aren't even substantial but they worry the market and they then jitters ensue and it usually takes a little while to mm-hmm. settle down we hope this time we'll it's much faster, but uh, that's not been the experience. I mean, Warren Buffett's words were right, weren't they? When there's um, when the tide goes out, you find out who wasn't wearing a bathing suit. And we've found, uh, found the CEOs uh, of a couple of big banks now weren't wearing bathing suits. It does yes. make you wonder, doesn't it? We're going to find a few more. Yeah, quite a horrible sight, probably. <laughs> <laughs> what what does the Fed do now? It's, it's meeting starting its meeting today. We're going to get an interest rate decision Thursday morning, Hong Kong time. Does it now have to pause and reconsider? Or does it worry that if it does that, it's really catowing to the financial markets and big banks and giving up on its inflation fighting mandate? Already last week, after Silicon Valley Bank's crisis emerged, market commentators were saying that uh, the Fed would be unlikely to increase interest rates by probably the 25 basis points they were planning on doing. Now, uh, and and at that time, we had no idea of the Credit Suisse situation. Mm. Now, I think it's even more difficult for the Fed to think about increasing interest rates. It can indicate that it will continue to raise rates, but I think to increase them this week um, would probably be adding a little bit more fuel onto the fire that we've already got going on in the banking system worldwide. But then we could get more volatility in the markets, couldn't we, because of all the uncertainty. And if people start to think, well, maybe the Fed now is going easy on inflation, there's other concerns, we're going to see even bigger moves in the bond markets once again. How much more volatility do you want, Peter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've had seven seven days of record moves in the bond markets now. And I agree. And of course, Stuart's right. You can only have so much volatility, but... But either way, it's going to shake up the markets because it'll it'll reflect a, not a lack of confidence in one sense, or moving ahead maybe uh, maybe not judiciously in another sense. So uh, I, I think that it'll be a very difficult period. Is it is it affecting business confidence? Do you think all all of this uncertainty, all of these big moves that we're seeing um, in in the markets, are businesses thinking you know well we ought to reconsider now where we're investing, what what we're doing? Yeah, they are already, right? They they were already. And, of course, the experience of the last three or four years has made them rethink in a lot of, a lot of other ways. And 2023 was supposed to be a, a year of recovery, but it was always cautious. It was always very cautious, trying to, trying to determine which were the priorities and where they should go. And this is just going to add to the, uh, to the worries and uncertainties and the difficulties of making those decisions. Just another element. And it could be a very important element, depending on what their financial situation mm. is. 
And what are they saying about the recovery on the mainland? The data that we've had, the economic data, seems to suggest, yes, there is a recovery, but you would hardly describe it as a boom, would you? Um, consumers aren't well, rushing out to the shops and, and spending as if there's no tomorrow. Our, one of our key points is don't plan on consumer surge because <laughs> mm. households are going to be cautious after the lockdowns, especially with with home prices flat or falling in some cases, their balance sheets look good, but that doesn't mean they're they're necessarily going to going to spend. Of course, this contrasts with the government's attempt again to depend more on domestic demand for moving the economy, especially since exports are weak. So it it does does uh, does affect it. China looks still like it's going to have a reasonable year, four to five percent growth. Who knows at this point? But at the same time not quite as robust as I think um, think consumers were hoping, companies were hoping, and so on. Hope I'm wrong. If this, <laughs> if this crisis gets worse, where does the rescue come from? Where do the lifeboats come from this time? Because last time around, in 2008, central banks around the world slashed interest rates down to zero, negative in some cases. They can't do that again, can they? Not this time. Um, and China came to the rescue. It flooded its economy with liquidity. Um, you know, it, it helped really drag the global economy up by its bootstraps. China can't do that again either. So this crisis, um, how, do, how do we get out of it? By time, I think, um, I, it's not going to be a question of um, fiscal support. As you say, it's not, that's, there are very limited uh, areas where that can happen. But don't, don't make the assumption that um, interest rates can't go down. Um, that would be a big surprise, but it could possibly happen. Um, because you know, when you think that interest rates are U.S. about 4% now, they, they can go down from that level. Uh, but I, th I think that we have to just play this one out. Um, most of the uh, work necessary to play it out has already begun. The, the, the clearly um, support for the weak banks in the United States and the support for Credit Suisse and the buyout by um, UBS will have made a big difference. Uh, so I don't think we could... I don't think we need to worry about this. I don't think we need to panic. There isn't anything to panic about. The global economy is recovering, and it's recovering at a at a slower pace than some people would like, but it's going in the right direction, and that's yeah. the more important aspect. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, and, and I think that that's the hopeful sign. In China, government has been reluctant to stimulate the economy in many ways anyway, in the property market, uh, to deal with the debt problem and so on. Um, it's interesting to see, will this make them more cautious or will the government feel it has to step in because of this, because of worries? I think that's going to be a decision we'll see uh, pretty soon, or indicators at least. Yeah. Now, President Xi Jinping has started a three-day state visit to Russia yesterday amid warnings from the US of unspecified consequences should he decide to send arms to Russia. Up until now, China hasn't supplied Russia with legal aid, uh, lethal aid to help it win the war in Ukraine, although the US claims China is considering doing so. 
This is President Xi's first visit to Russia since its troops invaded Ukraine. On arrival, Mr Putin said he will discuss Xi Jinping's 12-point plan to settle what he described as the acute crisis in Ukraine. He said war is open for a negotiation process. So President Xi says um, there is a no-limits partnership uh, with Russia and with President Putin. Are we going to see, do you think, during this, this visit, the limits of that partnership? Um, I think the interesting thing is President Xi has begun to show that he wants to be seen as a global statesman. He wants to be seen as a peacemaker. And he wants to be seen as someone who is not the... Um, not in the same sort of pariah status that uh, Putin is in. So I think that um, whilst we have heard from the Russian side and their opinion of of President Xi's visit, we're not really getting much feedback from the China side at this stage. And I think what we must hope for perhaps today is that in the negotiations that are due to happen during the day-to-day in Moscow, that uh, President Xi will take uh, Putin uh, to um, task about not sort of going for a more peaceful element here. What What is notable, actually, is that whilst um, Xi Jinping is in Russia, uh, it would appear as if the Russian forces are not increasing or at least enhancing any of their attacks in Ukraine, it would be very interesting to see if um, they, they um, if Xi Jinping does get to speak to President Zelensky, whether or not he even makes a, a surprise visit to Kiev. If he does, that would be amazing, but also indicative of the, the intent to try to bring about an element of peace. I think if we see at the end of this, um, uh, all of a sudden another surge of Russian attacks into Ukraine, that will, uh, in in effect, invalidate more or less everything um, President Xi has been doing or trying to do. And I think that would be the worst thing that would happen for him. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, President, President Xi, I think, has a little bit of leverage here, potentially. I, Russia, Russia depends a lot on China, even more so than they ever have. And I agree with Stuart that uh, a contact with with President Zelensky would be would be would be dramatic, whether it's personal or whether it's over the phone. But Zelensky has shown that he's at least publicly that he's open to something here. I don't know what that means, but it, it he, he certainly didn't dismiss it out of hand. Uh, the American American factor in this, of course, is fairly important. Any move toward lethal aid, I think, would have a, a pretty devastating effect in the U.S., even among those in the U.S. who have who have, uh, has, have skepticism about U.S. continued aid to Ukraine, especially at these levels and so on, because that tends to unite, unite people and would make the situation worse. So I think this is actually could be quite an important visit, not that it would settle everything very quickly. I think we're... We're not maybe that that optimistic, but at the same time, as Stewart says, if there are indicators that there is some progress, and that afterwards maybe things do, if not calm down, at least 
be a little less volatile. I mean, it's been a big concern, hasn't it, of international investors about the state of US-China um, relations. Do you think um, this could help improve that? Is there anything that President Xi could do to maybe uh, improve relations with the US and also with the EU as well? Because um, his support for Russia has really alienated the EU, hasn't it? could be interesting in the sense that it's sort of mixed in terms of the reaction in the U.S., even including for the Biden administration, because while they're, they, in theory, would welcome anything that would move toward the easing the crisis, I don't think they want China to be the leading leading figure in, in doing that, because we really are talking about a rivalry for, uh, for, for world superiority in many ways, and a lot, a lot of that has been economic and regarding technology, but also geopolitically as well. And and this would do it. So if the U.S. is somehow involved and, and Europe, I guess, to some extent in in if there if there is a movement toward a uh, toward a compromise, then it might have have an impact. But overall, I think it's a very mixed picture. Politically. I agree. I agree. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. Good to hear from you. You heard there Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant, and Mark Michelson, who is Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. And thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. There's plenty more information about today's top stories and financial markets on my daily blog. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow and with another show. Joining me then will be personal wealth advisor Enzio Ron Fowle and John Schofield. Managing director at Tempest Investments with a view from Japan is Nick Smith, strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Thank you very much for listening and bye for now. Money Talk.